0: John, and we're in the third chapter. We've been talking about what it means to be a Christian. And we have spent three or four weeks really looking at what has to be, at least in my mind, one of the most important things we can talk about. If you haven't been here uh, for the last couple of weeks, maybe you're here for the first time, I don't think you could have picked a better week to be here. Anytime that we're going to talk about what it means to be a Christian, to me, is the most important conversation we can have. And John has been saying to us a couple of things. Here's the first way. It's a doctrinal way. This is always scary because this is a reflection on how poorly the teaching has been. But John has said doctrinally, we know we're a Christian if what? If we confess two things, what are they? Anybody? Sin, if we confess sin, if we acknowledge sin, confess means to agree or to acknowledge. If we take sin and we confess that we are sinful, we acknowledge that we're a sinner, that's one prerequisite. What's another one? Boy, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we put those together and we get a sense of what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who confesses sin. They acknowledge that they've sinned. They have the ability to say, "I've sinned." You know, it's been almost two years now, but we still like to beat Gary hard up every now and then, and, and we take it. And we take that. If you remember that whole scenario as it unplayed itself, and if you remember the the, the conference after conference after conference, when he said, I, "You know, what I made was a mistake. I made a, a a mistake. It wasn't a big mistake." And as he talked, what he essentially said to us was, "He made an error in scheduling, uh, not an adultery." And that was kind of the whole thing. And we talked last week about uh, uh, an athlete who's been in the news lately and fathered a couple of children here and now got married over here and wants to take care of the children that he fathered. And he said he wants to do that because he's a Christian. In fact, he was on the other night with Larry King for a half hour and they talked for a half hour and finally somebody called in, an irate woman, and said, do you think you've sinned? And he said, well... Maybe in some sort of a doctor. No. Uh-uh. Well, that man's not a Christian. And here's how we make that statement. Not judgmentally. We make that statement so you and I can see what a Christian really is. A man who confesses Jesus and a man who confesses sin. That's the doctrinal test. Now, John also says that there is a moral test. Okay? Internally, you can know that you're a Christian doctrinally by the confession of sin and by the confession of Jesus as Lord. But now comes the day-to-day living. Now it's going to affect the way you live. Now John said it's going to affect the way we live in two ways. Remember what they were? The first one we looked at last week. It's in 1st John in the 3rd chapter and essentially the 4th verse. Won't continue in sin. Won't continue in sin. No, be righteous living. That's exactly right. He said this, everyone who practices lawlessness is sin. There's a definition of sin for you. It's lawlessness. If, if we want to live as though we are above the law, if we want to pretend that there is no God, that in fact I am God, I'm in control of this situation, I'll make the rules, if that's the way we want to do it, then we will sin. And we can pretend that for a while. We can pretend there's no rules. And we see the truth of that so graphically in the physical world. We can climb up to the 20th floor of a a high-rise building and leap off and pretend there's no law of gravity. Just pretend it doesn't exist. I may even be convinced that it doesn't exist. But there is a time, no matter what I believe, in which the laws of the universe take over and I pay the consequence for that sin. If that's true in the physical realm, and it is, it's just as true... In the spiritual realm. If you practice lawlessness, I want you to know something. You're not righteous. Verse 6. No one who abides in Him, capital H, no one who abides in Christ, sins. No one who sin has seen Him or know Him. And that's a pretty big statement. And the NIV says it a little more clearly. The NIV says it this way. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or know him. It's a continuing sense. The verb in the original language is a continuing sense. It doesn't say you'll never sin, but it does say this. You will not continue in a state of sin. You cannot. You cannot continue in a state of sin. It will eat you alive. In fact, remember, that's what happened to David. He cries out in Psalm 31. Remember what he says? He said, this thing is eating me up. It's eating me up physically. I'm starting to waste away physically. All right. Almost inevitably, when some guy walks in and he's lost a bunch of weight, or he looks massively different, almost always there's sin in his life. Now, I say this once and my pants all crinkled up in the back. So Almost always, because it just eats him alive. The guy yesterday came up down in Tucson and I said, boy, you've lost a lot of weight. He said, well, I've I've literally... my, My business has been so far down and so far out and so far away that I've literally quit functioning. And he said, I'm just now pulling myself with the help of the Lord Jesus Christ back out of this thing. See, and that's what sin does. And you may be thinking this guy wasn't in sin. I'll tell you what he was, man. He was worried about his business. And God said, sin... And worry go hand in hand. It's a sin for you and I to worry. Can you believe that? It's a sin to worry. It is a sin to be anxious. He said, don't be anxious about anything. And And the picture, in the original language, the word anxious means to be pulled in two directions. Don't be anxious. Don't be pulled in two directions. Don't be pulled away from this mission that you have to serve the Lord Jesus Christ by worrying about this stupid real estate deal. Now, it's okay to be concerned about it. And that's not just some gymnastics to get us around it so we can think about it. Hey, we're human beings. If I had my little girl in here and I had her sitting up on this thing and she jumped off on her face and her nose is laying over to the side, I'm going to move. I'm going to be anxious. I'm going to be concerned about that. But I'm not going to be fretting and worrying and wringing my hands back and forth and so incapacitated that I can't function. He said, if you're like that, if something in your life has gotten to that point that it has literally paralyzed you, you say, you're in sin, deep sin. He lays it out. He says this, look it. There are two tests morally. <clears throat> the first one is going to be right living. He said, if somebody's involved in sin continually, ongoingly, and they don't confess, they're not Christian. I had a guy come up. This is my, I love this. We taught this a week ago, and I understand that this is fairly hard stuff. And I know that not everybody on every street corner—excuse me—not <laughs> everybody on every—not everybody—not <clears throat> everybody on every street corner is teaching it. I know that. But I tell you this: this guy came up. He's been in our study down in uh, in Mesa, and he came up afterwards. He's from uh, a alcoholic background. He's been dry a couple of years. Just been around this about a year now. We taught that last time and he came up and he said, uh, you know, uh, you know, that that John is right. (laughs) I said, well, I kind of started with that basic supposition, but it's kind of (laughs) neat. It's kind of neat to know that. But he said, you know, that's right, because he said, I've got all these friends. And you know what? They all say they're Christians. We were all just alike, but I'm the only one that's changed. He said, they're not Christians They don't even really believe in Christ, but they're not involved in church. They don't go to Bible study. They don't pray. They don't do anything. He said, they're not Christian, are they? And I said, no, probably not. Because that's what God says. Men, God says this. If you come to Christ in repentance and faith, your life will change. If it doesn't change, watch out. If you're still doing business the same old way, watch out. Men, it should be a delight to do business with a Christian. It should be a joy to do business with a Christian because you should know exactly where you stand. The Christian should be the ultimate businessman. I was reading something the other day, a VP of marketing of IBM, and he was talking about the secret of IBM and why IBM is so successful. And he was saying essentially it's because we're in the people business. We're here to serve, we're here to provide the best product we can. We're here. to to have our people do the best that they can. We're here to meet the customer's needs. Well, men, that's exactly the way a Christian ought to be doing business. And if somehow in your mind you have said, well, this Christian stuff, it has a place in the church and it has a place on Thursday morning. It has a place in the family. Okay, God's got some stuff to say about how I deal with my family. But he sure doesn't have anything to say about business. Men, you've never read the book. God says this should affect every aspect of your life. And let me tell you, when the real test of that comes, it comes in a down market. comes when the notes are due. come when the pressure's on. Now's the time that there's a test. One jerk can't pay his bills when he's got plenty of cash. Lots of them that I used to deal with it, but aside from that... Most everybody can handle those things. Those become personal integrity tests of how we disperse the money. But now comes the real test of how do you do business. Now you've got this dog that you bought. This was going to put you on easy street. And now it's time to sell this dog because it is truly a dog. And now you're trying to wrestle with how how do we let this thing bark in front of a potential client? <laughs> I mean, how big a dog is this? And how do we sell it? Men, this is time of integrity. And let me just tell you something. God will honor your integrity in business. That's what it says. It says, seek us the kingdom of God, and he'll take care of all the other things. And that's exactly what John says. A little detour, and this is a little different than we normally do it. The setup is different, and we'll be back to normal as soon as the hotel is. But uh, let me just ask you this. I hear this all the time. I hear this so much. It, it, it's kind of like a lot of things. It's just been a cliche. But what's it mean to make Jesus number one in my life? I mean, that's what somebody said the other day. I've made Jesus number one in my life. What does that mean? Anybody? <clears throat> There's no wrong answer to this. I'll give you the first and foremost. My, first and foremost. Okay. What does that mean? It means I, I put all my trust and faith in Him and carry on. Okay. Be obedient. I'm obedient to Him. Okay. Anybody else? Turn my will and my life over to His care. Turn my life and my will over to His care. Okay. What exactly Do it exactly how he would do it. Anybody else? He's always my first consideration. He's always the first consideration. Just trust him. See, I think you've got to put all those together, and everybody's saying exactly what I think it means to have him number one. It means I'm going to place him first. Here's what it means is my life is, if you'll allow the term, value driven by his values. We did a, a goofy talk show the other day, call-in radio show on ethics. And, and, and it's kind of interesting because ethics is all vogue again. I picked an article out of the Wall Street Journal uh, where uh, uh, one of the headlines said, uh, ethics of value but can be a handicap, declares some executives. <laughs> we live in a world that's struggling for ethics. And you know what? The world is going to continue to struggle. And they're going to study it. As you know now, it's now part of a curriculum at major universities. Uh, They're teaching ethics in high school. The problem is this. Ethics is value-driven. What's the basis? I mean, I can sit down with John Wayne Gacy, and under his economy, he sees himself as an ethical man. Isn't that true? See, to have Jesus, number one, means I'm going to take his word. I'm going to get his thought. I'm going to be obedient to his mind and then I'm going to view my life from his perspective. Here's the greatest management book ever written. I went to the bookstore the other day and there's this whole wall on business management and that's really good and we need that stuff. But if it's not based on this, I'll live a long time without it. See, this will drive it. And if you do this and if you follow the principles that God lays out in his word, you will have the perfect management system. That's what his word says. And that's what he says clearly. Now, verse 10 becomes a transition verse. And he transitions into where we're going today. He said, moral behavior exhibits itself in two ways. Number one, right living. Number one, I live correctly. Here's the second one. Here's the transition verse, verse 10. He summarizes and then he redirects his efforts. He says this. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone... Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who loves his brother. He said, here's the two tests. It's the one we were just talking about. One of them will be righteousness. There's going to be a a, a lifestyle that's right living. A Christian is going to live correctly, correctly by God's standards, not by the world's standards, not by what is legal, not by what's morally acceptable in society, but what by God declares correct. Here's the second test, guys. And can I tell you, this is maybe even a bigger test. He says, I will begin to love my brother. Verse 11, he said, this is the message which you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another." As a teacher, every time I hear that little little phrase, this is what you've heard from the beginning, I begin to cringe. Because you know what that means? He's about to say the same thing over again. Which means I just used every illustration I had to make the point the first time. Here's what he's saying. He said, you heard this from day one. You're supposed to love one another. Let me put that in a little bit different text. That word love is so bantered around and we hear it so much. My daughter just said to me last night, I love pizza. I'm not sure that's what John has in mind as he writes this. But we use that word in so many ways. There's a section of scripture, and let me just read it to you from the Living Bible. It's a section of scripture that you hear every time uh, you uh, have to go to a wedding. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's the love chapter. But I want you to listen to it a little differently today. I want you to listen to it from the perspective of loving one another in this room. There was a day and an age when I would have had a hard time saying, okay, man, I want you to love one another. Uh, That thought process just didn't come through my mind. In fact, guys that did love one another, I used to think were all California residents. I mean, that's just was my perspective on life. I just didn't buy that. But I now know that that's not the case, that there are men who love one another, and not only men who do, but we are commanded to. This is in the imperative form. He says this, you and I are to love the brothers in Christ. Let me, let me just read to you what Paul says in First Corinthians 13 about love. And if you have it, fine. If not, just listen. From the Living Bible. If I have the gift of being able to speak in other languages without learning them and could speak in every language that there is on heaven and earth, but I didn't love others, I'd be making... If I had the gift of prophecy and knew all what was going to happen in the future, if I knew everything about everything but didn't love others, what good would it do? Even if I had the gift of faith so I could speak to mountains and they would move, I would still be worth nothing at all without love. If I gave everything I have to the poor people, and if I were burned alive for preaching the gospel but didn't love others, it would be of no value whatever. You get a sense of the high value that Paul places on love, and now he defines it for us. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is never jealous or envious. Love never boasts, is never boastful or proud, never haughty or selfish or rude. Love does not demand its own way. It is not irritable or touchy. It does not hold grudges and will haunt you at wrong. It will never be glad about injustice, but will rejoice when truth wins. If you love someone, you will be loyal to him no matter what the cost. You will always believe in him, always expect the best from him, and always stand your ground in defending him. Now, John says that's the attitude we're to have for one another. Let me ask you this. Do you love your brothers in Christ? this is targeted for those of you that are Christians. I don't know all of you. Maybe you are and maybe you aren't. But here's a real test. Do you love your brothers? Do you love the fellow Christians? Do you spend time with them? Are you involved on a weekly basis in a church? Man, this isn't a church. This is a hotel. And we're not a church, and we're not here to replace a church. We're here to try to reach out to some of you that wouldn't even be part of a church. And we're doing a pretty good job of that, I think. We had a guy call the other day. He said, I'm going to go to church for the first time. I said, oh, I'm so excited. He said, I've got to ask you something. I said, yep. He said, what should I wear? Think we hit the target market on that guy? Absolutely, that's what we're after. But we also want to speak to those of you that are heavily involved in the church that use this as an outreach. Do you love the brothers? I mean, do you really love them? Or is it just kind of something you got to do? And with non-Christians and Christians, can I tell you something, guys? you got a problem if you do. That's what John says. Now you're with those Christians. How about this? Are you patient? Are you kind? See, I'm frustrated by them because you know what? They're not like me. It's kind of interesting. Almost every organization I belong to, I belong to a group of people that are just like me. I mean, if you go if you go to the American Medical Association meeting, you got a bunch of doctors, you got four hundred and fifty eight portable phones all these guys walking around with phones and pagers and they all have the same thing and they're all talking about the latest technique you go to the board of realtors and there's all these little realtors they make like a look a little different you got the gals with the hoop earrings, rings and you got the guys with the monogram shirts and you got all these guys sitting together but essentially you have money grubbing people all together in one room with you. and then you move to there and you go to a pta meeting and you got all these parents that have a concern and essentially it's kind of all the same but all of a sudden i come to the body of christ and i got young people and old people and I got rich people and I got poor people and I got single people I got divorced people I got drug addicts I got I got uh, guys that have had a, a assorted background I've got black people I have Asian Americans I have Americans I have Irish Americans I got all this thing it looks like the democratic party sometimes as you're standing there before some of these churches a little bit of everything there okay and I'm looking at this and I'm saying you know this is tough you ever feel that way what do you like when you're in that? Because John says, hey, let me tell you humanly my response. There'd be something wrong with you if you didn't have some sort of a feeling where you said, wow, oh, the Spirit of God kicks over and all of a sudden you have relationships that are deeper than any you could ever have because they're based on a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you patient and kind in those settings? Here's one. Are you jealous? You ever get around the church and get a little envious of somebody? This is always dangerous to do, but I like doing it. Let me be really honest with you. I was in a setting a couple of weeks ago. guy's doing a small group study. 25 or 30 guys. We're there. We're walking out. Three guys. I'm walking with them and they said, I've never heard anything like this. They said, this was incredible. What this guy talked about today absolutely was awesome. I mean, this guy just expanded my mind and gave me a new perspective on the Word of God and on... You know what I felt? I said, you want to hear good? Let me get you the tape from three weeks ago. You want to hear good? Here, I got a tape. Here's one from San Antonio. Try this one, baby. (laughs) I was so jealous of that guy. I wanted to say, hey, his whole premise, I've been teaching for eight straight weeks on Sunday morning. And I had to stand before God and say, God, you know, uh, that sounds a little bit like... uh, a big mistake. Well, maybe sin. <laughs> I said, God, that's just pure sin. That's just pure, unadulterated pride and jealousy. You know what my response should have been? And I did it that last week, and I did it again last night. I said, guys, I want to tell you, something that my fire. What was it he said that excited you? And then I'll tell you what he said that excited me. What was it he said that put you on fire? What are you going to do now that he's got you on fire? Now, is that going to change the way you live? What group are you going to be involved in? See, now that's the way you're to work in the body of Christ. And he says, if you're not functioning that way, you got a problem. And it's sin. And then we need to watch out for that ugly pride, that peer pride. Again, I've told you before, it was always the unwritten rule at Cobalt Banker. Always our favorite saying. Always the motto that we live by. the, The next best thing to making a deal was seeing someone else lose one. And that's exactly how we felt. Because if I can't have it, he's not going to have it. And absolutely the ultimate was watching somebody very successful make yet another deal. And then all getting together. <laughs> it's his pride. It's all it is. It's his pride. And it will drive you men to sin. It will drive you to do things you never dreamt. And no matter what it is, it will drive you It it, it will make you sin. Isn't that amazing? He said, if you really love the brothers, you're not going to do that. Now, he said, now, here's the negative illustration. It's in verse 12. It's in the person of Cain. He said, I want you to love your brothers, not like Cain, who was of the evil one. John makes the point of saying Cain was moved by the evil one. He told us up in verse 4, the devil is the evil one. The evil one in this sense means literally one who's willing to be evil in corruption, but not only that, he seeks to destroy others. Okay? That's the picture of the devil. Okay? Cain was of the evil one. He slew his brother. His brother was Abel. And here's how. For a reason, for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. I don't know if you remember the story. It's in Genesis 4. God asked for a sacrifice from Cain and Abel. Both bring sacrifices. One is accepted by God and within his prescribed method of sacrifice and the other is not. And Cain raises up in jealous anger and slays his brother. John said, there's the attitude not to have. Not be driven by jealousy. To be obedient to God and to love one another. At one point in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And I think the order is significant because I think it's far harder to rejoice with somebody who's rejoicing than it is to weep with somebody who's weeping. If I come in here next week and say, my little five-year-old baby is riddled with cancer and it's tearing us apart and it's tearing her apart and it's a matter of months, you're going to weep. I mean, there's not a guy, there may be one or two of you that are beyond that and if you are, we pray for you, but most of you guys are going to be broken-hearted. You're going to identify with that and you're going to weep. But if I come in here next week and I say, hey, guess what? His uncle. We, did, we had his uncle. We never even knew this guy, Uncle Harold. I mean, he lives in Oskaloosa, Iowa, and all of a sudden, here's Harold. Harold just mailed us, that he died, and his attorney mailed us this check for $750,000. <laughs> Aha, pal, let's hear the lesson. They're going to rejoice. I don't want to hear that one, do we? no, no, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> because why you want the 750 <laughs> and that's just human nature and that's the way we work I mean th- these guys look at these guys at least four all look alike it's easy to tell they're all golfers okay and there's got to be just a sense in there there's a tension in there and not knowing these guys take the guys that are in the Bible study it's a, the golfer's Bible study is an interesting Bible study because you've got all these guys together you know, and they're all together, and they're all brothers, but they kind of are paired the next day against each other. Oh, congratulations on that. Well, good job. <laughs> and there's a real tension there, man. And you know how you survive in that? There's only one way you can survive. Is you got to understand that God's in control. And you got to understand that when He does well, I do well. And when I see this teacher exercising a spiritual gift and turning on these guys, you know what? That's good for me. Because the body of Christ grows. The body of Christ is alive. Isn't that great? And that's what he says. He says, look it, don't be like this. Here you go, verse twelve, or just 14. We know that we pass from death to life because we've loved the brothers. He said, we know that we were dead spiritually and now we're alive spiritually because we love the brothers. He who does not love is dead. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know that there are hiding in them. John says this, he said, look at. I want you to understand that, in fact, if you hate, you're as good as a murderer. That's what Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you've heard it, don't slay one another, don't kill. I'm saying to you, the one who says, raka, literally empty head, jug head, goofball, who says that to his brother is as bad as a murderer. Now, you've heard it, and it was Jimmy Carter's favorite verse. You've heard it, don't commit adultery, but Jesus said, he who lusts after a woman have already committed adultery. There's a new rule. There's a new economy. And he's saying, sure, that is bad. But he said, I want you to understand how important it is to love. Look at verse 17. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for the brother. We should be willing to die for the brother's. Probably none of the stories that come out of war and the tragedy there touch us more than a man who perhaps uh, leaps on a hand grenade and saves the other uh, four or five guys in a foxhole. We, uh, there's just something, at least maybe me, maybe I'm unique in that, but there's something about us that says, this guy's a real, I mean, this is the ultimate hero. In a sense, every man who goes off to war puts his life on the line, and they absolutely do, and we have a great debt of thanks to them. But there's something about this guy, I mean, there's not a lot of question in this guy's. Once he leaps, unless this baby is some sort of a dud, he's history, and we admire that. That's what Jesus did. The perfect man died on the cross for our sin. That's why we have Good Friday coming and that's why we have Easter. Jesus died, the perfect man, for your sin and mine. He became, he paid the price for your sin and for my sin. And he said, you and I ought to be able to live that way. We ought to have that spirit. And you know, most of us, I think in our mind, say, oh, you know, I think I would. If it came to that, that's pro- I'd do that. I think I, 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 you know, on the right, I could do that. I think I'd do it. That's right, I'll do it. But we know that we're sitting here in Scottsdale, we're pretty safe. So since we're willing to give our life, verse 17 should become very easy. Whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let not your love let us not love with word or tongue, but indeed in deed and truth." He says this: "If you have the world's goods, If your needs are met, then you, by meeting their financial and physical needs. Hello. Well, I'm more in the I'll throw myself in the hand grenade category. (laughs) Get get out of those rusty old grenades and launch it this way. Here's what he says, and James says it this way. He said, if you want to understand what faith really is, then here's what it is. Faith, is the man who sees his brother in need and responds. He said, what value is it if you see your brother in need and you say, hey, hang in there, God is great, and I'll pray for you and go on. He says this, man, you and I have an obligation with our money to line it up with the rest of our lives. He got an obligation from God to meet the financial needs of those around you. Now it doesn't mean this it doesn't mean that every uh, morning at eight o'clock we kick open the uh, door and, I, and and you start to parade in I say, okay yeah what's your need a hundred Susan give him a hundred. okay, who's next here 120 120 It's not what he's saying. he's saying this when my needs are met, when I 've got my needs met, and I understand that that's a big loophole for you because some of you have your needs so convoluted that you'll never get them met. John D Rockefeller couldn't meet your needs. When I have my honest needs met, when in my heart I've got the necessities covered, I have an obligation when I see somebody in need to reach out and to make that need. That's what God says. See, that's that's what love is. I'm meeting those needs. Question. How are you doing on that measure? It is incredibly important, men, how you handle your money. It is massively important how you earn it. You need to earn it straight and honest. Total integrity, how you spend it, what you spend it on, and where you invest it, and where you give it. You need to watch closely where you give your money. Your money needs to be given to organizations that are concerned about the cause of Christ. Your money needs to be given to organizations that are indeed above board and responsible, that are in line with where you are philosophically, theologically. He says, if you're not doing that, you've got problems. That's why he says, verse 18, he said, look it. You're going to mouth these babies. Put your money where your mouth is. Let me just put a pitch in here because we're running out of... Not a pitch for money. (laughs) Although that would have been a good time right there, would not it? There are other things that I have that other people need. People desperately need your time. People desperately need your advice. And you need to give it. There's a myth going on. And it's all over. It permeates everywhere. And I hear it from everybody. Everybody that I talk to is too busy. You've decided that you're busy. Now I got in my back pocket four tickets for the Masters. Four flights, not on Eastern, but on Delta (laughs) to Atlanta. that I've got a town car waiting to pick you up to take you to the golf course. How long would it take you to clear the calendar for the first week in April? (laughs) David's free. Well... uh... (laughs) men, we're not too busy. We did some calculations last week, and plus or minus, you have about 46 hours of discretionary time on your calendar every week. You're not too busy. The question is, I think most of us are guilty of misappropriation of funds of our discretionary time. We're investing time in a bunch of stuff that doesn't matter. be 27 million people watched the People's Choice Awards the other night. Are you kidding me or what? We've got time. He said, people need your time, men. Men out there are lonely and they need your advice. And if you're a godly man, they desperately need your advice. This is my favorite story and we have to start to wrap it up. But I sat with a guy in Tucson. This was about a year ago. And this guy, men, is everything you'd want to be. I mean, this guy is a stud. 34, 35 years old. I mean, he's handsome. He's taller than me. (laughs) Dark. He's about a two or a three handicap in golf. He's an A-tennis player. He's got a business that's thriving. I mean, this guy has got it in the wheelhouse. Single. He's got it in the wheelhouse. And there's not a person in here who wouldn't say, this guy's got it in the wheelhouse. So we sat at breakfast to talk about some things. And he was having some problems and some questions and some things. And I said, who's your best friend? Now, those of you that are in sales, you know this technique. I used it all the time. I still find that it's especially effective in the work that I'm in now. Once I get the issue to where I want it, I don't talk anymore. I'm done. And we used to sit in some of our sales meetings where we'd make presentations. I'd sit three, four, five minutes and nobody'd say anything. We just kind of look at each other. Because it's a, I've said everything. Anything I say at this point is going to take the pressure off the guy And it's it's going to cause him, all I'm going to do is feed him more material for an objection. I've got the issue where I want it with this guy. I say, who's your best friend? And we're eating, and I'm cutting my eggs, and I'm kind of eating along, and I look up every once in a while, and he's kind of sitting there. He said, well, I really don't know. And I said, well, let me just say this. Let's suppose you got in a problem. You've got a little problem here. But I said, let's suppose you had a big problem. Who would you go to? And his answer, men, is laughable were it not so sad. He said, if I really had a problem and I really, really, really had to talk to somebody, I think I'd probably just have to talk to my dog. And I started to laugh and then I realized how serious he was. And I said, well, how would you solve it? And he said, I'd have to solve it myself. (laughs) You know, and unfortunately that guy speaks for millions of people and many of you in this room. You want to really love a brother? You want to really love... Another man in Christ, here's what you need to do, guys. Get close to him and make yourself available to him. Some of you guys, I look around, some of you guys have been through a ton of stuff. Some of you guys are older, some of you guys are younger. You guys have so much to offer. It drives me nuts to go out and to some of these trailer parks and retirement villages and do these talks I enjoy doing them I love to do them but here is this incredible wealth of knowledge and experience and I don't mean I don't mean guys that work for GM and ran corporations I mean guys that live godly lives and they're sitting there and the next group I go through is a bunch of young guys that are filled with enthusiasm but they don't know where to go and I'm thinking how can I get these two together boy if you really want to love and demonstrate love pick out a guy and then go after him. Don't be embarrassed to give them a call and say, can we have breakfast? I have I want to run by you? You're in business. You were in business 30 years, right? Yep. You were a Christian in that time, right? Yep. Did you ever face any struggles with that? And how did you resolve them? See, that's how the body of Christ is supposed to work, men. You're available. It's not an inconvenience when the phone rings. Our phone, my parents were just here. My mom said, this is driving me crazy. The phone rings all day long. I say, well, it drives me a little goofy too. It's not my favorite thing. But see, we're available. We're available for this reason, guys. We love you. Some of you I don't even know, but I can tell you that we love you. Some of you I don't particularly like, but I can tell you that I love you. And we're here. And that's why we're here, and that's why we do this. Men, that's the test of a godly man. He's available. He's a loving man, and it permeates all aspects of his life. There's something that goes with love. It goes hand in hand. It's called truth. And next week, John is going to talk to us about truth. What is the truth? Can we know the truth? And then how do we know when somebody's is selling us a pig and a poke? Well, we'll find out next week. Let's pray. <laughs> Father, we thank you for your word. That it is so real and so practical and so honest, so truthful. Lord, we just ask you to make us men who love one another. Father, give us a a spirit of love for one another, a sense in which we just want to share what's going on in our life when we're open and honest and straightforward. Father, thank you so much that we can come together as men with your Son, Jesus, in the center of this relationship. God, help us overcome those natural human instincts of jealousy and envy and pride. Father, help us be men who literally love one another and encourage one another and weep with one another, but we rejoice with one another. Father, help us be lovers. Father, help us put our money where our mouth is Help us go above and beyond the call of duty. Father, help us be lovers, not just in word, but in deed. We ask right now, Lord, that you take each one of us and bring somebody into our life and give us a, or give us a boldness to reach out to somebody else and just say, hey, how about a cup of coffee? How about breakfast? How about just sharing what's going on? How do you survive day in and day out? And God, we trust you to build relationships. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ for His ultimate act of love when He, perfect and sinless, died for us, riddled with sin. Father, thank You for that demonstration of love, for that example of love, and Father, thank You for the gift of life that comes from it. Lord, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus, and it's in His name we pray. Amen. See you next week!